Chapter 21 of Secret History Revealed by Lady Peggy O'Malley. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by John Brandon. Sacred History Revealed by Lady Peggy O'Malley by Charles Norris Williamson and Alice Muriel Williamson. Chapter 21 Escape of the Gallant Mars were the words that seized my eyes as I opened the front door of the haven to snatch the morning papers. Rain was pouring down, but I halted in the porch to read. Oblivious of the rivulet that streamed over my hair, Mars the Elusive had been true to his name once more. It was an almost miraculous story, or would have seemed so in less stirring times than these, which are teaching us that brave men can do anything they set their minds to do. Mars, with a few English prisoners and some Russians from General Renenkampf's force captured in East Prussia, had been sent to work in the fields outside a little German town in Alsace. Several of these, among them Mars, had been wounded and in hospital together, but were turned out as cured the moment they were strong enough to wield a scythe. Led by Mars, a young Russian officer and a private in a Highland regiment had escaped from the gang of prisoners by crawling for a long distance through tall ranks of grain. They had hidden themselves among the stacks, and at night had continued their progress in the direction they hoped of the French frontier. Next morning they were given shelter by a farmer's wife whose sympathies were with France. She provided them with disguises, but they ventured to move only at night. At the end of four nights' travel they came upon French soldiers advancing into Alsace and made themselves known but not until they had been fired on as spies. Mars and the Russian had both been wounded and were in a French field hospital at the time the newspaper account of their adventures went to press. Neither were badly hurt, but they were extremely weak from lack of food and loss of blood, to say nothing of old wounds scarcely healed when they had started on their dash for freedom. The Russian officer said to be a nephew of Prince Sanzanov, Russia's ambassador to England, considered that he owed his life to the aviator, and it was believed that when the two were able to move, they would be brought to a private convalescent home in London, financed by the Russian ambassadress and other great ladies. I was so happy for the rest of the day that, as I could tell no one what was in my heart, I sang to myself, under my breath, It's a long, long way to Tipperary. Eagle was alive and safe, after all my black fears, and I felt sure that if he came to England, I should meet him. He could not say now that he had done nothing worthwhile. I thought, too, that he would see the time had come at last to let the world know that Monsieur Mars and Captain Eagleston March were one. I longed for the day of revelation. It seemed to me that it would be a great day. I could hardly wait for it to arrive. But a fortnight passed, 
and the papers had no more to say of Mars the elusive. Meanwhile, the world had been busily making history for its future generations, and momentous things had been happening to almost everyone I knew except myself and my own immediate circle. Since I had first met Millie at Diana's many weeks ago and had been shown the letter from Stefan, he had actually arrived in England from Archangel, whence gossip said 250,000 other Russians had been mysteriously shipped to North Britain. Alas for romance, those Russian hordes were imaginary. But there was no doubt that Millie Dalziel's Russian had appeared in flesh and blood, though with only enough of either to keep body and soul together. They had been married a few days after Count Stefan Stefanovich had arrived. A picturesque wedding performed with all formalities by a Russian priest, while the bridegroom lay propped up in bed in that suite at the Savoy of which Mrs. Dalziel had talked. No guests present except the bride's mother and father, Tony Sr. having obediently dashed across the ocean, and the Russian ambassador with his wife. At the time I was not unselfish enough to interest myself profoundly in Millie's marriage, for my mind was filled with thoughts of Eagle March, and I could not forget how Millie, snubbed by him for her own good, had let her supposed love for Eagle turn into bitter spite. I didn't believe that a girl who had so lately cared for a man like Eagle March could really have been caught in a rebound of heart by Stefan Stefanovich. I had seen Stefan no more than once or twice when he was military attaché at the Russian embassy, but that was often enough for me to know some of his limitations. In looks and manner, he compared poorly with Eagle, to my mind. I was inclined to think that without his counthood, Millie would have had no use for him, or he for her without her money. This spoiled the romance of the affair in my eyes, and I had no premonition of what Millie's Russian relationships were soon to mean for me. When she had been married a little more than a fortnight, and before any further news had come out concerning the elusive Mars and his companion, I was told one day by Miss Jane that I was called for at the telephone. I left a room full of baby Belgians, for whom I was playing nursemaid, to run to the phone, and was stabbed with disappointment to hear Diana's voice. You see, every rap of the postman, every brrr of the telephone bell, might mean the longed-for message from Eagle, which always I hoped for, even expected. Hello, Peggy, said Di. I've got a piece of good news for you. My heart gave a silly leap, and then sat down again, because she would be the last person in the world to give me news of Eagle Marsh. What is it? I asked without interest. Princess Sansonoff hasn't forgotten you, and sends you a special message. Princess Sanzanov is the wife of the Russian ambassador. She's giving quite an informal dinner, Di went on, getting it up almost on the spur of the moment, because the doctor says that Stefan is well enough to go out, and the affair is really for him and Millie. 
I don't think there'll be many there except ourselves, for the princess is asking everyone verbally. That's why she sends you a message instead of a card. It is to say that she has always admired La Petite Lady Peggy, and now more than ever. I happen to tell her about your Liège experience and your work for the Belgians. She particularly wants me to bring you to dinner with her and the prince tomorrow night. You'll come, of course? Oh, I don't know if I can, I hesitated. There's so much to do here, and anyhow I haven't a frock. Miss Jane and Miss Emma bought me lots of nice things when they bought their own, for of course they lost their luggage too. But we never so much as thought of evening dresses. I'd forgotten their existence. But you must go, Di persisted. The trunk you stored at Norfolk Street for Ballyconnell has been brought here with father's and Kitty's things. Celestine can take the measurements of some frock or other you've packed away there, and I'll go out and choose a pretty model gown, ready to wear, for a present to you. Shoes and gloves you can get yourself, I suppose. If you'll come here early to dress, Celestine can take tucks and change hooks in next to no time, if necessary. I accept it for you, and it will be horribly rude to the princess if you refuse now, for no reason at all. I could have found or invented a reason if I hadn't remembered in a sudden flash that Monsieur Mar's companion in flight was supposed to be a nephew of Prince Senzanov. If I went to the embassy I might hear news. I was willing to do almost anything for that hope, even to dressing at Sidney Van Dyke's house and continuing the armed truce in his automobile to our destination. But I drew the line at accepting a frock bought with his money. Why, yes, I'd forgotten the trunk I packed with winter things for Ballyconnell, I answered. There's that white chiffon velvet gown, made over from yours, which I wore in New York last spring before the weather turned hot. Do you remember? It will do beautifully for tomorrow night. I'm sure it's as good as ever, so you needn't buy me anything, many thanks. And I'm so glad you spoke of the trunk. I'll have it brought up here afterward. It's small and won't take up much room. There are lots of things in it I can spare for our Belgian women. Very well, as you like, said Di. That white velvet was quite nice, and will be all right if it's not full of beggars' creases. You can have the little trunk put on the luggage carrier of the car tomorrow night when we send you back to Fitzjohn's Avenue. It will save the trouble of getting Carter Patterson or someone else to call here for it. And that reminds me, one of the things I wanted to say to you was this. You were asking Bally if he had any old clothes to spare you for your Belgian women's husbands. Well, Kitty has found a few, but there are a whole heap of Sydney's things you can have if you want them. Masses of luggage have just arrived from America. Boxes of books and rugs and trunks full of clothing packed up and sent after him by his soldier servant, when Sid definitely decided to resign and live over here. All the clothes are a bit out of date now, or Sidney thinks so, and there are some army things he never wants to see any more, 
Anyhow, he has collected quantities of new clothes, and if you would like the American things for your men protégés, you're welcome to them. It went against the grain with me to accept even this favor from the enemy, but I reflected hastily that I had no right to refuse what would do good to others. After all, it was nothing to me, and Sidney could not help realizing that, if he heard of the transaction. I thanked I again, and said I should be glad of anything she had to give, as the destitution among the men of the Belgian refugees was as pitiful as among the women. We shall be thankful to get the collection out of the house, answered Diana. Sid's man unpacked the boxes, and of course was free to choose what he wanted for himself, but he's such a little monkey, none of the clothes would fit him. I remembered you and your poor people, which I do think was rather sweet of me, as I have such crowds of things to do every moment. So I told Sykes to spread the lot out in that empty room we haven't furnished yet, directly over mine. I mean to have it turned into a kind of den for Sid, so the sooner we can sweep away the boxes and mess, generally the better. Suppose you look in after the dinner at the embassy tomorrow night and pick out what you fancy. Sykes can dump everything into an empty trunk for you, and it can be put with yours on the back of the Grail's Grice for you to cart off to Hampstead. I knew that if I wished to make sure of the booty, I had better take diet or word, for as likely as not, she would change her mind in a day or two and offer the things to somebody else. I replied that I thought her plan was a very good one, and I would carry it out exactly as she proposed. The next evening I went early to Park Lane in order to unearth the white velvet frock from the old trunk packed for Ireland, and dress myself in it when it was found. Talking to Kitty and Di delayed me for a few minutes, however, so that I had no time to waste when I ran up to the shuttered room where my little trunk as well as Sidney's things from America were in temporary storage. No one could be spared to help me, as Di's maid and Kitty's had already begun to lay out their mistress's things for dinner. But I have been used all my life to looking after myself. I didn't in the least mind grubbing on my knees to unlock the box, finding the dress I wanted, and unwrapping it from layers of tissue paper. As I stood up to shake the frock and examine anxiously as to its condition by the light of the electric lamp, which I had switched on for the purpose, I saw many suits of Sidney Van Dyke's clothes, neatly folded by Sykes, his valet, and piled on tables and boxes. It was too late, then, to look at the things before dressing, but I cast an appraising glance in their direction, and my eyes lit upon what seemed to be a khaki uniform bundled ignominiously between a suit of evening clothes and a crimson dressing-gown. Fancy his not having sentiment enough to keep his army things, I thought scornfully. But, of course, he was never a real soldier at heart, or he wouldn't have resigned, at his age, to be lazy and please Diana. How different from— But I wouldn't let myself even think Eagle's name in that connection— Fortunately, I had packed away the white chiffon velvet with unusual care, for me, and there were a few creases in the soft folds which wouldn't disappear eventually when I put the frock on. As I dressed in a far corner of Di's room, well out of her way and that of her maid Celestine, 
and managing my toilet operations as best I could with a small hand glass, my thoughts would fly back to that old khaki uniform upstairs. I wondered if it were one Sidney had worn in camp in Texas days when his jealous rage was piling up against Eagle. It seemed to me that there must be an evil influence hanging about those clothes of his, and I was still thinking this when Major Van Dyke, Father, Diana, and Kitty and I were bunched together, a rather silent party in Di's big roomy town car, spinning from Park Lane to the Russian Embassy, with Kitchener's night lights fanning long white arms across the sky of unnaturally darkened London. As it was supposed to be a small, informal dinner, we arrived promptly on the hour, and when Princess Sansonoff, a beautiful tall woman with the mysterious sad eyes of the Slav people, had greeted us, she said that four of her guests had still to arrive, Count and Countess Stefanovich, and two others, whose presence was to be the surprise of the evening. I will tell you only this, she laughed in her pretty English, when I pretended to be wildly curious. Like Stefan, they have both come back from the front, and they are the most exciting heroes. I won't dream of spoiling my great coup by letting you guess their names until they are announced. But this you shall know, dear Lady Diana. My two surprises are to have the honor of taking you and our bride into dinner. All the other women will be envying you both. Di was pleased and interested. She realized that her hostess meant to pay her, as well as Millie, a great compliment for those other women of whom the princess spoke were important socially and charming in themselves. What she called a small informal dinner would be made up of twenty-two guests, and the informality would consist in the innovation of having small tables. The princess introduced me to a very young youth, her son, who had been away at Eton, when I had visited at the embassy before. He began at once to air his grievance of lacking a year of the age when a man can be allowed to serve his country, and I was sympathizing with him because he was not fighting when Millie and her husband were announced. She was looking prettier than I had ever seen her, with quite new airs and graces of a married woman and a countess, and Stefan, though extremely plain of face and insignificant of figure, was interesting because of his experiences, his limp, and his right arm in a black silk sling. Millie seemed to think that she and her husband were the guests of the evening and apologized in a high voice for being late. But the princess reassured her. We have still two more to come, our two surprises. And she was going on to excite Millie's curiosity as she had Diana's, when the magnificent Russian butler, who looked as if he had stepped from some medieval picture, cried aloud two names. Major Baron Skobolev. Captain March. End of chapter 21. Recording by John Brandon.